Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to Think Compliance. Everything Compliance is the only podcast in compliance featuring the top roundtable of compliance commentators. It includes Mike Volkoff, founder of the Volkoff Law Group, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors with Affiliated Monitors. First, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? As I have founded the Compliance Podcast Network, I'm always looking for new podcasts. If you have wanted to start a podcast but were at a loss as to how to do so, please listen to a message from today's sponsor, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of Everything Compliance. The Everything Compliance gang consists of Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, who is also the founder and editor at Radical Compliance, Michael Volkoff, the founder of the Volkoff Law Group, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, uh, unfortunately, Jonathan Armstrong is on assignment today, so I am sitting in in his chair in addition to being the moderator. So, gentlemen, uh, welcome. And uh, Mr. Kelly, uh, what, what is on your mind today? Uh, well, thank you, Tom. So today I wanted to talk about internal controls. And uh, we have some news from the Securities and Exchange Commission lately about internal control over financial reporting that I am sure – the audit and internal control enthusiasts who listen to this podcast are jumping for joy that I am going to talk about ICFR. And for all of the more law school uh, lawyer ethics and compliance officers worried about anti-corruption, I have some points about internal control for you as well. So here's what's been going on and that caught my mind is um, at the end of January, the SEC did a uh, sort of a sweep, a mini sweep. They announced four different civil enforcement actions all at the same time against four different companies for failure to remediate effective internal or in material weaknesses. So they had ineffective internal control over financial reporting. They had material weakness in their ICFR. And the SEC's beef was that these companies did disclose that they had material weaknesses and their ICFR was not good. Uh, but all they did was disclose that year after year after year. So among the four of them, all four had been disclosing the same problems for seven to 10 years. And one of the four still was having material weaknesses unresolved as of January when they were announcing the fines. Um, so the SEC made this big to-do that basically these companies were announcing lousy internal control a, a year after year. Miraculously, once the SEC staff started calling them up and saying, when are you going to fix this? They started to fix it. Uh, so three out of the four have fixed this these material weaknesses by 2017, by 2018. There's one more that still has one issue unresolved. But what the SEC did that caught my mind, this is a direct quote. They said, companies cannot hide behind disclosure as a way to meet your ICFR obligations. Disclosure of material weakness is not enough without 
meaningful remediation. So basically, uh, the SEC was telling these companies, you know, get with the program, guys. You, you got to clean up your mess. Um, they implemented or they hit the uh, the four firms with various civil penalties. Uh, I think the smallest was thirty five thousand dollars. The largest was two hundred thousand dollars. It went to Grupo Simec, which is a Mexican cement firm that uh, they are the ones who have had material weaknesses for 10 years running and still have one unresolved as of today. Um, Two of these firms, Mexican Grupo and another one, I can't remember the other one, uh, they actually, not only did they have material weaknesses that they haven't bothered to fix, but under SOX, you also have to perform an annual assessment of your internal controls. Even if you say it's not good, uh, and we're going to fix it sooner or later, which these guys didn't do, um, you still have to step forward and say, we have assessed uh, our internal control every year. And two of these companies didn't even bother to do that for several years. So I was just really struck that the SEC is clearly sending a message to companies that you must work hard at your internal control. And this is the second time within about six weeks that we have seen the SEC take action against the company because uh, it has not had sufficient resources and sufficient staff to do all of this good work around ICFR. So the previous example was more serious. At the end of December, uh, the SEC fined Hertz, the car rental people, fined them $16 million for sloppy accounting in the mid part of the decade that led to a big financial restatement. And again, and with that fine, uh, the SEC zeroed in on the fact that Hertz had not had sufficient audit staff, not competent, not big enough budgets, not big enough good technology, insufficient resources. That was part of the problem. They clearly are zeroed in on the same concept here with these four smaller companies. They're smaller fines for, um, a one might say a lesser sort of offense. There were no restatements involved here, but uh, we see that the SEC is leaning on companies that if you have a mess, you got to clean it up. And to clean it up, you have to hire good staff, give them good tools, and give them the materials and the wherewithal to go ahead and clean this all up. Um, now, here's where I have some perspective for the FCPA crowd, because I know you people will be wondering, well, how come if you have a material weakness like this on the SEC side, they're dinging these four companies, you know, maybe $35,000 to $200,000. But we saw several SEC enforcement actions last uh, fall around internal controls related to FCPA. And the penalties there were in the millions. So that was against Sanofi. That was against Polycom. Um, they had big disgorgement of penalties or big disgorgement of profits. They had monetary penalties. How come internal control violations with FCPA get hit by the hammer and internal control violations over here, which ostensibly are the same sort of a problem, they're getting hit with, you know, just a ruler on the knuckles. What's going on? Um, I would just like to stress that what is going on is we have really two different types of problems. Uh, go back to the FCPA internal control issues that we saw with Sanofi and Polycom, and we've seen them before. What happened there was that those companies were all saying, we do have effective ICFR. From a financial reporting standpoint, that might be true. But the reality was that their ICFR 
wasn't effective enough. It was still weak enough that employees and third parties could use the weaknesses in internal control to go forward and commit a crime. And yes, I know in Sanofi and Polycom, the Justice Department did not bring a criminal action. That does not automatically mean that no crime was committed. It only means the Justice Department looked at all the facts and decided this case is not something where we want to continue to some possible prosecution. So there's a difference there between those kind of misconduct failures, those internal control failures, that misconduct. And what happened with these four companies is that basically they were saying, yeah, our accounting is kind of a mess and we've disclosed it. So that's it, you know, and they really left their corporate accounting like it's looking like some kind of a, a frat house dump for year after year. Um, those companies, the four from last month, they had admitted that they had ineffective internal control, uh, but they didn't get off their duff to fix it. And the SEC is saying that is not enough. Um, and in not only that, but I would add several of these companies, while they were small, uh, they their revenues or their operating expenses were doubling or tripling over the period of seven to 10 years where they still just had the same material issues recurring year after year. So think about it. If your company essentially doubles or triples in operations, but you know you've got bad accounting, and f despite all that growth, you still have one or two people in the accounting staff, and you're not giving them the wherewithal, the tools, or the, the training, or the uh, resources to address problems, like that unto itself, that is a problem. There is no surprise that the SEC uh, took some action against them. But it's not the same as having internal controls that you say are effective, but they're not effective enough for to prevent FCPA abuses. And then you do have FCPA abuses, which is the problem that led to larger fines with uh, Sanofi, with Polycom, with others. With these companies here, these smaller ones, I think the SEC is sending a message to small issuers generally that just because you're small, just because you're not going to conquer the world, that doesn't mean you can have loosey-goosey accounting systems that are eventually going to get decrepit and not fit for purpose. You have to fix it. It is something to uh, think about. I don't know how many large companies would have these issues because really if you're a large company with a material weakness for seven or eight or nine years, I'd be flipping out about where is the audit firm? What are you paying these people for? You know, what's the CFO getting paid for? But for a lot of small companies who think they can skate on internal control issues, no, you can't. And that's what the SEC was saying. And that was my message for, for this month. So, Matt, I have a question for you. Uh, many times we see the SEC explore uh, new areas of enforcement in regulated industries, such as the four cases that um, you talk about in the mini sweep of January. A yep. Any thoughts as to whether the sort of mini sweep you saw in these smaller companies around um, not remediating the material weaknesses that were disclosed could move to an area such as uh, the FCPA jurisdiction that the SEC has? So, for instance, the SEC could simply audit a, a company's internal controls and determine that uh, some of these deficiencies existed, lack of uh, competent staff, lack of resources, or, or uh, simply not remediating something that was determined to be close to a weakness? Well, I mean, theoretically, they could. On a very practical level, I'd start to question, does the SEC have 
the manpower to be able to do something like that. Um, I think it would be a good idea because people forget that material weaknesses and accounting problems and adjustments and restatements or whatnot, they are far more common around smaller companies than large companies. Uh, Large companies generally do have their accounting in order. They are required under Sarbanes-Oxley to have an annual audit of their internal controls. Smaller companies are not. And it has been studied and statistically proven those smaller companies do have uh, more trouble with their corporate accounting, more adjustments, more restatements, more incidents of fraud, things like that. Um, so I welcome the SEC turning the heat up with this small example. Uh, I don't necessarily know that uh, they really could do a larger uh, sweep of that. But clearly, they are sending some messages because we do see uh, on a fairly regular basis now that they are paying more attention to internal controls. What is interesting to me actually was more in the Hertz enforcement action. They were quite clear, the SEC, that part of the penalty here stems from the fact that Hertz did not have competent staff there or they did not have enough competent staff. I I don't want to necessarily smear the, the competent staff who might have been overworked at Hertz. But they were saying, you need to put resources here to treat ICFR with the attention it deserves. Um, you know, some of my question would be really maybe around the materiality thresholds for ICFR for financial reporting and accounting and restatement purposes and the threshold of materiality for the FCPA and anti-bribery concerns because there isn't one. In theory, you could have very small bribes being paid that could still lead to very significant FCPA actions. Um, so I don't quite know how they would figure all that out, but like, you rarely see the SEC announce a little sweep like this over something you know, is in theory innocuous or as straightforward as just saying, guys, get with the program, clean up your act. Seven years of not looking at your accounting, not tending to your problems is insufficient. And the SEC did clearly say, disclosure is not enough. You must remediate them. Perfect. You know, word for word, right in the statement, perfectly clear message. So um, I, I don't know what they might do, but certainly they could do that. And it wouldn't be a bad thing to for ICFR and for investors if they did. So Jay Rosen, uh, what's been on your mind around corporate culture? You mean besides the Patriots winning the Super Bowl, there's something else that should be on my mind? Did the Patriots win the Super Bowl this year? Is it, is, uh, in a very ugly fashion. In a very is that ugly breaking fashion. news? Did you guys know that? Okay. Okay. <laughs> so anyhow, Tom, um, I'd like to talk about uh, something uh, that you recently highlighted uh, with your interview with Rocky Kumar, uh, who's a senior managing director and head of – ESG investments and the asset stewardess and asset steward stewardship at State Street Global Advisors, and this is a, a real uh, interesting look at corporate culture in the boards that uh, supervise these companies, and uh, a framework on how to work with this going forward. And um, basically. Uh, they have called upon boards to place a greater emphasis on corporate culture, which SSGA says is a top asset 
uh, stewardship engagement priority for the asset manager in 2019. And they've chosen to focus on uh, this as a long-term investment value, which has driven SSGA to engage the investment community around effective, independent board leadership. Uh, looking at board quality, including cognitive diversity, enhanced by better gender diversity. So this is a, a significant focus because it's actually having boards uh, use an oversight as a mechanism to present negative reputational damage. And this tracks very closely to some of the discussions we have about when you look at compliance and ethics, you know, does it operate as a cost center or is it a profit center? And does it actually add value to your organization? And in a recent Ernst & Young study, uh, it was found that intangible assets such as culture average 52% of an organization's market value. Um, the problem is, is that few directors can adequately articulate their company's culture or demonstrate how they assess to monitor, and influence the change necessary. Uh, Kumar defined corporate culture as encompassing a broad range of shared attitudes, shaping the behaviors of individuals as a group across an organization. This allows employees to identify with their organization and differentiate companies from competitors. It is closely associated with human capital management and to enhance culture, there must be effective leadership and incentive from senior management, yet the board must also engage in this oversight. Uh, there are three key areas on which the board needs to be educated. First, you need to educate the board on the need for both involvement and oversight of corporate culture. Second, you need to provide a framework for the board to evaluate the alignment of corporate culture with long-term strategy. And three, you need to suggest best practices related to culture that the SSGA has identified. By following these three general prescripts, a company can have something in place when the regulators come knocking. And uh, the problem tends to be is that the lack of focus on culture can delay or even derail important strategic objectives and pose unanticipated challenges for management. Kumar recognizes that the change in corporate culture does not come easily or quickly, and that's why SSGA sees this initiative as a multi-year project. She acknowledged that the results of the board efforts may be difficult to monitor at first, but this is why boards must proactively consider culture. Uh, when businesses see the value of using techniques to increase efficiency and enhance profitability and not simply as a legal prophylactic, it will certainly be a step forward. Um, and then I guess the other part I would like to highlight is that um, Kumar emphasized is that this is not a one-size-fits-all prescription. Sounds something similar to what we've said before about compliance at and ethics. Neither is it a tick-the-box exercise, but one which is ongoing, so read uh, as continuous improvement. And she said, a culture is very unique to a company. It needs to be unique just like its strategies. Unique culture needs to be unique. So there are certain questions that the board should be able to ask itself and answer. Uh, can the directors articulate the current corporate culture of the company? 
what does the board value about culture? What does it see as strengths? How can current corporate culture be improved? And how is senior management influencing or affecting change in corporate culture? This framework that's articulated begins with a typical gap analysis to describe the corporate culture need to achieve in the long-term objectives of the organizations. From there, the board should continue and be able to describe the existing corporate culture and how it is aligned with long-term strategy. Next, the line of inquiry is to find out what is important to your company's culture that you need to perpetuate and what are its drivers. And SSGA suggests that this process be performed in stages. And as we said before, it all begins with the gap analysis and moving forward. So, um, you know, I I think what Tom found very interesting in this, and, and I think what this article does a really great job of articulating, is that concepts that we've spoken about before for the company as a whole in looking at its ethical and compliance stance uh, really needs to flow up to the board level because if the board level is going to provide oversight, they need to be aligned in terms of incentives and they need to be given a tool or in this case, a framework on to how to evaluate their corporate culture. So Jay, I know uh, AMI and some of your work at AMI really turns and deals with assessing corporate culture. Do you find this framework uh, useful or, or helpful or something that a company can use in, in the work that you guys do sort of at the senior management level and below? Yeah, I, I think um, it, it really does provide a great roadmap. I think the the one caveat that you might need to consider is, you know, that Roma isn't built in a day and it might sometimes be daunting to perform this analysis and make changes upon your own. So um, kind of like uh, when I was a screenwriter, nobody wrote a bad script. Uh, you know, no board is going to come up with a bad program. So I think in terms of like looking at this self-reflexively, it's always good to potentially bring in uh, an independent perspective. And I think that's where we add uh, add to the uh, potential analysis here because we have done this before uh, with, you know, hundreds of boards and executives, and we know exactly where to go to look. And um, when you do bring in uh, an outside set of eyes, uh, you can agree upon a certain set of objectives that need to be uh, achieved along with the process. And by setting those milestones and by working together with an outside consultant, I think you uh, give yourself uh, a better chance to succeed. And then once you've built that foundation, uh, then this is something that you could go forward with on uh, within your organization and maybe uh, have less of an outside involvement and potentially bring back those fresh eyes every three to five years for an additional uh, assessment to see where you're at. Okay, well, as I said, Mr. Armstrong is on assignment this week, so uh, I'm not going to replace him. I'm just going to come in from the bullpen and uh, hopefully pitch to more than uh, more than one hitter, or at least I hopefully can get one out. 
But uh, what I wanted to talk about today was regime change and what regime change means for the compliance officer. I think most Americans, when we think of regime change, think of Saddam Hussein and uh, forcibly ejecting someone from a president's office, uh, whether it be uh, President Allende in Chile or Saddam Hussein in Baghdad. Um, but that's not the regime change I'm talking about. I'm talking about free and open democratic elections where a country's populace changes a, uh, a democratically elected ruler. And I'd like to focus on uh, four countries, um, Malaysia, Brazil, South Africa, and Angola. And in Malaysia, we had a, a new uh, prime minister elected. Uh, the former president, prime minister, Najib Razik, uh, is now under arrest for uh, scandals involving uh, the one or the one MDB scandal. In Brazil, uh, we've uh, certainly had a democratic elected uh, regime change there. Uh, we have a new president, and the former president, President um, Lula, was convicted uh, today, or rather this week, and sentenced to another 12 years in jail for uh, his corruption, generally around the Petrobras and car wash scandal. In South Africa, we did not have a new uh, election uh, uh, general populace. However, the ruling uh, the ruling party, the African National Congress, uh, democratically changed its president and presidential candidate from President Jacob Zuma to President Cyril Ramaphosa. And then finally in Angola, uh, as we did with South Africa, we had uh, uh, the political party change its nominee for president, the former president, uh, Jose Eduardo de Santos, and the new president, uh, Joao uh, Lorsano, I'm sure I butchered that. Nevertheless, uh, what this means for people doing business in these countries is each one of these has had major scandals. Malaysia, 1MDB, Brazil, Petrobras and Car Wash, um, South Africa, uh, capture, government capture uh, by the Gupta family, and in Angola, the uh, massive corruption alleged by the uh, not necessarily the former president, but his, certainly his family. We've got the son of the former president of Angola, Jose Filimon dos Santos, has been arrested. He uh, headed the company's sovereign wealth fund. The daughter of the former president, Isabel dos Santos, uh, is reputed to be the richest woman in Africa, and she was the head of uh, Sonegal and the Central National Bank in uh, Angola. Um, the uh, what all of this means for the compliance practitioner is. If there's going to be an election uh, in a country with a high incidence of corruption, high perception of corruption, rates low on the corruption perception index, whether you use the TICPI, TRACE, or other um, index, uh, you need to be aware of that. And you need to be aware of what business your company has done in those countries. Um, the Chinese model for doing business on their uh, Belt and Road program is uh, to deal directly with the top of the country. And if you do that, you have the flexibility to get things done. There are consequences, however, and that those consequences can be a lack of support among the intelligentsia and the bureaucracy in the country. And this means that you need to get into the country and engage the populace, whether that's through a CSR effort, corporate social responsibility, whether it's training of local indigenous people, whether it's investment in the country and other areas, whether it's investment in infrastructure, whether it's charitable donations. Because if you don't have that sort of 
more widespread support, uh, you're going to be uh, very uh, susceptible to losing contracts. And in each one of these countries, we've seen major contracts lost when the new uh, regime uh, came in. Uh, This is not a situation of uh, some uh, political uh, person ranting to lock her up. Uh, This is countries where systemic corruption allegations have been made by uh, the new regime, and the new regime is actively prosecuting uh, the former regime. And so uh, what you need to do as a compliance officer is, one, be aware of these situations, but two, you need to scrub your operations. Uh, if you are doing business, if you have done business in any of these countries, literally in the past five years, Malaysia, Brazil, South Africa, or Angola, you need to go back and look at the major deals. Uh, what uh, charitable donations did you make? What third parties did you use? How much uh, went to the third parties? If uh, Matt and I talked about distributors recently on uh, um, compliance into the weeds, if you use distributors, what discounts did you give to those distributors? All of the analysis you would make of uh, any of your operations to see if there was any point where money could bleed out or a pot of money could be created to pay a bribe. Uh, follow the money. Where did it go? Are there any places that uh, money or discounts or rebates or coupons got rewired to locations other than the country where uh, the country in question? So I've been really thinking about regime change uh, as a precursor to uh, criminal investigations by the new bosses. Uh, This is not uh, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. This is the new boss turning the tables on the old boss. So you can listen to the who all you want, but I don't think that's going to uh, help you through uh, this particular problem. And I think it's going to be a challenge for uh, literally uh, every U.S. company, but certainly for compliance officers. uh, You need to be aware of this. You need to be able to scrub your operations. You need to have visibility across multiple silos so that you can uh, determine how much was uh, spent pre uh, bid or pre-response to an RFQ? How much was uh, spent on gifts, travel, and entertainment? Uh, what was the original contract bid? Were there any discounts granted? And then, of course, what happened after the contract was signed? Have you audited your third parties? All of the things that we talk about in the nuts and bolts of compliance, but I would say that to ramp these up and compress the time frames and to do so as quickly as you can going forward. So, um, I think regime change is going to be something that uh, compliance officers need to be aware of. Certainly from the political perspective, if politics and the country change, you need to be aware of that. But it also shows, I think, why the American model of doing business in companies will, will be sustained over the long term, whereas other countries such as China and Russia that come in and only deal with the top and play by a different set of rules are not going to be successful because at the end of the day, they're not going to have support among the pop- populace and popular support uh, among the country. So that was what I wanted to talk about today. Uh, anybody have any questions on that? Uh, Tom, hey, this is Mike, uh, and it sort of bleeds into uh, my topic. But, um, you know, another country to watch is Venezuela. And, uh, and I would think, depending upon how that plays out, you could have, uh, you know, a wholesale investigation or something into PETAVASA. Uh, given you know their operations and their uh, their sort of involvement in so many controversial areas, so 
Um, I would add that to your list as well. Uh, I mean, I know we don't have regime change there yet, but I do think at some point, uh, you know, the situation is sort of unsustainable right now. Uh, that that's absolutely right, Mike. And uh, uh, everybody listening to this in the energy industry knows they've done business in Venezuela at some point over the past ten years. Take a look at it. So, but something changed over the past couple of weeks, at least since our last podcast. So that gives me a great way to introduce. Mike Volkoff, who is going to talk to us about Venezuela, PDVSA, and economic sanctions. Mike, take it away. Well, I, and, and I think this sort of uh, dovetails nicely. I mean, we're seeing, you know, real political upheaval right now. Um, and in terms of the Maduro administration, and, and I mean, in fact, I mean, I would, I mean, the last news reports I saw were uh, the Maduro administration was blocking uh, the delivery of foodstuffs and other things from Colombia coming across into Venezuela. Um, I, in the obviously in Houston, being the hotbed uh, of the oil and gas industry, this is uh, having a big impact on people. Uh, and you know, the administration, I think, is really uh, you know doubling down in terms of regime change in the sense that they. Um, recognize also uh, the new interim president, as they call him, Juan Guaido, uh, in um, basically, you know, we're seeing a lot of Venezuelans flee, um, you know, the country as well, given the protests and the lack of uh, sort of basic supplies there. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. But uh, in the way that the administration in many ways doubled down was First, obviously, recognizing the interim president and not uh, continuing to recognize Maduro. But in the sanctions area from OFAC, we had a really uh, difficult set of new sanctions uh, that came out. On uh, January 25th, uh, the president issued a new executive order, which expanded the authority for previous, you know, for sanctions against Venezuela. Um, and then three days later, we had OFAC uh, added PDVSA um, to, and which is obviously the most important source of revenue, to its list of specially designated nationals and blocked persons. So that means that all the companies, everybody that's doing business with PDVSA, uh, U.S. companies, U.S. persons, uh, are now prohibited from doing so. Um, and and there obviously are lots of companies that are majority owned by PDVSA that are also subject to the sanctions because of their majority ownership or control. So this it really targets Venezuela's uh, oil sector for obvious reasons to disrupt uh, any chance of them making money. Um, and it's going to have a real significant impact. And it's had already an impact on U.S. businesses, U.S. and you know, the global oil companies as well. Um, so one of the things that they did, uh, to try to ease the sort of transition was they issued a series of general licenses, uh, which allow us companies, obviously a period, a wind down period to finish up pre-existing dealings, but they're pretty complicated. And of course, uh, there's not as much guidance, uh, in that area. So that's, uh, something to be careful about. Um, they also allowed and continued, will allow under this general license for 
period of time, uh, the import of oil to the United States. And it turns out that PDVSA obviously exports a fair amount of oil to the United States. Um, so that is going to continue in terms of business that benefits uh, the export of oil to an import by the United States. But again, uh, that's only for uh, a limited time period until uh, there's the, the closeout. So there are a lot of practical consequences here. I think it's a risky, it's obviously a risky move to try to shut down PDVSA, recognizing uh, an interim president uh, and seeing whether or not Maduro can hold on. There are also, at least from you know conversations with clients who do, are either from Venezuela or do a lot of business with Venezuela, is um, you know one of the concerns they're watching is to see how the military reacts. If the military uh, may even try to seize power themselves, uh, and for at least right now, a lot of the military is still supporting Maduro, but I don't know how long that can uh, go on. Anyway, so talk about regime change. This is a regime that if it does change, I think what Tom, all your points uh, are actually uh, spot on because I think you're going to see people try to trash the Maduro regime and trash Petavesa for its corruption, try to clean things up. And that will mean more and more disclosures of uh, information coming out or coordination with law enforcement uh, in uh, in other countries, including the United States. So it should be interesting. But uh, it's actually pretty – I have one client that lives down there and refuses to leave. It's his home country. And he told me uh, it's an absolute crazy uh, time in in uh, Caracas right now. Uh, so, Mike, uh, yeah. I had a question. Um, obviously, uh, Sitco, uh, U.S. refiner and gasoline company, have still have the Sitco sign in Boston above Fenway Park, um, <laughs> is a U.S. company. It's, however, owned by Panavesa. How does a U.S. company owned by someone, an entity which has now been sanctioned and you can't do business with, uh, continue to do business as a corporation? Well, one of the things that they, given the unique situation with Sitco, there's a, a, a lot of people have not been paid by uh, PDVSA or they're, they've had long delays in terms of, you know, and I'm talking about like years and years uh, of bills that haven't been paid. Uh, and so now there have been a lot of debtor suits and collect and and actually class actions against Sitco as a way for United States entities to try to get their hands on some assets. Um, the other thing that the sanctions did uh, was this was done earlier in when they imposed uh, other sanctions against uh, Maduro is they included a general license to allow Sitco Sitco uh, to continue to operate. Um, Nonetheless, there are a lot of risks in dealing with Sitco, even though it's Petavesa owned because of all these lawsuits that are pending where people are trying to get uh, their hands on the assets. You know, the famous uh, trial lawyer, David Boyce, is leading a, uh, a, a group of uh, a class action suit against Sitco to try to get their hands on the assets uh, in terms of what's left. So it's it's really complicated. You may have a license to operate, but you have all these sort of sharks circling Sitco at the moment to try to get uh, money because they figure they'll never get paid by Petavesa. Gentlemen, uh, let us turn to rants and or shout outs. And we seem to 
have a rock and roll on that lineup. So, uh, Mr. Kelly, you want to lead us off on a rant or a shout out? I, I do, Tom. Uh, although before I get into my rant, I just want to say from time to time uh, in Boston here, we have talked about somehow seizing the Sitco sign as a uh, public eminent domain thing and declaring it a landmark right outside of Fenway Park. Um, <laughs> so who knows? Maybe someday. Um, but so my rant today is against a Canadian financial firm by the name of Quadriga CX. And some of you may have heard of what happened to Quadriga CX and its founder uh, not long ago. Uh, the founder is a man named Jerry Cotton, and Quadriga CX is one of those cryptocurrency trading platforms. And over the course of, I don't know exactly how long, several years that he was running the trading platform, Quadriga managed to get 92,000 customers who had ponied up more than, I think, $190 million worth of real money that they turned into cryptocurrency that they stored with Quadriga. And uh, so Mr. Cotton stored them in what the technology people call a cold wallet. So a hot digital wallet is where you put your cryptocurrency and it is an application connected to the internet. A cold wallet is the same thing in a computer not connected to an internet. So you give this guy all of your money in cryptocurrency. He basically puts it on a thumb drive and then uh, pulls the thumb drive off of a computer and keeps it in cold storage somewhere in his house. <coughs> so that's what Jerry Cotton had done for a while. And then he traveled to India last fall, um, last December, where he was allegedly going to be building an orphanage and then suddenly died at the age of 30. And now nobody can get their $190 million in digital assets back from Quadriga because he was the only one with the password to open those digital wallets that are stored in a thumb drive somewhere. This has become a ridiculous example of why we need much more regulation of cryptocurrency to prevent things like this from happening. Now, I will give credit to the SEC that Chairman Jay Clayton here in our country, he understands that this kind of stuff is preposterous. And I don't know why Canadian regulators have not done anything near as appropriate in their country. But this is $190 million in assets this guy was running from his laptop in his house in New Brunswick somewhere. He had no office. He was the sole employee of his firm. He was the sole board director. And apparently he was the sole one who knew the password. Couldn't even do the time-honored thing of writing your password down on a post-it note and sticking it to your computer so some auditor somewhere could eventually come and yell at you for a security flaw. He didn't even do that. And then he went and traveled to India, and he died suddenly. And we don't know how we're going to get this money back. It's nuts. Um, Ernst & Young has been hired by Quadriga, uh, which I don't even know who hired him, but Quadriga now says that it has hired Ernst & Young to try and unravel this. This money is going to be gone. Ernst & Young is not going to figure out how to do this. There are all sorts of allegations from investors in Quadriga who entrusted their assets with him. Is Jerry Cotton really dead? Have we seen his body? Have we seen his passport? Has he been? Uh, his remains been repatriated back to Canada? Ridiculous stuff that would never even be an issue with a real company handling real assets with real uh, regulation to ensure some investor protections – all of it out the window with Quadriga. They are a terrible case of just mismanagement and poor oversight gone wrong. 
I hope the cryptocurrency world gets its act together someday because stuff like this ruins cryptocurrency's good name. Not that it had a good one to begin with, but what little good name it had went out the window with this. I sympathize to his spouse, who uh, his widow, who is surviving without him, if he really is dead. But guys, you got to be kidding me with this story. That's my rant. Jay Rosen. I'm not even sure if I want to follow that one, Matt. But um, <laughs> uh, being the chowder head that I am, I would be remiss with uh, if I did not... Uh, celebrate the snoozer of a game last Sunday with the Patriots uh, beating my hometown, second hometown, L.A. Rams. And uh, quite often on our commentaries and podcasts, we draw compliance lessons from different artistic works, from the movies, from paintings. Uh, and the thing I just want to, uh, w- whether or not you love them or you hate them, I think Bill Belichick needs to be applauded for taking people and putting people as assets in positions to succeed. And there have been numerous people who the Patriots have picked up off either the scrap heap or off other teams where they weren't working, uh, who didn't know how to utilize their talents, whether it's a Wes Welker or Danny Amendola. But I find it's always quite interesting when these people leave the Patriots and get a payday that they are no longer effective and they are no longer contributing to their team. So I would uh, posit that if people can follow the Belichick, um, I guess, form and way of viewing the world and don't be bringing in, uh, you know, people that you think. Uh, You know, you don't have to spend a lot of money or you don't have to have a lot of flashy tools. But if you recognize the people that are on your team and put them in a better uh, position to succeed, I think you can have uh, success in your organization from a compliance and ethics point of view. So that's my uh, shout out to Belichick and using people and putting them in the position to succeed. So, Jay, I'm going to also uh, follow with a shout-out from the world of sports. Uh, I want to shout-out to Frank Robinson. Frank Robinson died this week. Frank Robinson was the first African-American manager uh, in the major leagues. Uh, But that's not what I want to give him a shout-out for. I want to uh, talk about Frank Robinson, the baseball player. He was on the All-Century team. He was the 1956 Uh, NL Rookie of the Year. He was the 1961 Most Valuable Player. He won a Golden Globe, Golden Globe, Golden Glove (laughs) in his MVP year of 1961. He hit 323 with 37 homers and 124 RBIs, leading the Reds to their first pennant in 21 years. Uh, In 1965, after coming off a 33-homer, 113-RBI season, um, he had turned 30 years old, and the Cincinnati Reds said that he was, quote, an old 30, end quote. And they shipped him off to the Baltimore Orioles for Milt Pabas and two players who can't even, names can't even be listed in the uh, sports reports anymore. In his first season with Baltimore, uh, this 30-year-old, old 30-year-old, was named the AL MVP, and he did that because he won baseball's triple crown. He had 49 home runs, had 122 RBIs, and a 316 
uh, batting average, and he led the Orioles to their first World Series title. So my shout-out today is to the old guys. And these are the guys who are old at 30, uh, not at old at an older age. So uh, here's one for the old guys. I always wondered why George Blanda was my father's favorite quarterback, and uh, now I understand. So shout-out to Frank Robinson, a great baseball player and someone who helped break the color barrier, another color barrier in baseball. Michael Volkoff, what do you have for us? Well, uh, I have just a quick shout out, but I also want to uh, mention I did see Frank Robinson play in 1966 in Memorial Stadium, and he actually hit a home run that uh, the time I saw him, the only time I ever saw him play, uh, an incredible uh, baseball player. Anyway, uh, a quick shout out in the field. Uh, Dick Casson, I guess, has uh, officially retired uh, and uh, from the FCPA blog, and um I think everybody in the compliance profession uh, owes a lot to Dick for all of his great work through the years and in terms of promoting the compliance profession and and promoting knowledge about the FCPA. Uh, He is, and I'm sure all of us, we all know him, and uh, he's just a a wonderful person and uh, sorry to see him go, but I'm also sure that he will still be doing some things around the compliance profession and around the blog. I think his son is going to be, uh, has taken it over as I recall, Harry. Uh, but anyways, just a, a tip, a tip of our collective hats to, uh, uh, to Dick and all the great work that he's done. Here, here. Well said, well said, Michael, uh, gentlemen, I want to uh, thank you all for letting me sit in on the uh, commentator chair this week. It was a ton of fun. I look forward to our next convocation. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Everything Compliance. I hope you will join the gang for our next episode in a couple of weeks. The Everything Compliance gang is Jonathan Armstrong, Mike Volkoff, Jay Rosen, and Matt Kelly. Everything Compliance is a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.